1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I've completed reading Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, And my final opinion on it is that I had forecasted a few weeks ago. I think that some of my lackluster feeling about this classic story is one of distance of time. There are elements to it that may have made more sense to people a couple generations before me, but maybe are missing from the current culture that I grew up in. As I said before, I'm in the minority on my opinion on the story, and that's fine. If you like the story, I wish I could be more like you. I've now tucked into a slightly longer read, the classic Rosemary's Baby, and although I'm only a third of the way through the story, I'm really enjoying it. Ira Levin has done a very good job of laying the groundwork for strange happenings and dialing up the weirdness at a pace that keeps the reader interested, but doesn't do it with a heavy hand. I feel that I'm right about the part of the story where things really get going. I also watched two movies recently. One was The Shape of Water, which I had never seen before and somehow missed having the nature of the movie explained to me, despite having it been up for numerous movie awards not so long ago. I had incorrectly presumed that it was a horror film. It is a monster movie. And the Amazonian monster in this movie is a second cousin to the creature from the Black Lagoon, so it must be a horror movie, right? Well, if you haven't seen it, do. It's a very well-made movie about love and xenophobia, but it's not scary. The other movie was an old favorite of mine, Interview with a Vampire, based on the equally good Anne Rice book of the same name. I'll draw a, perhaps tenuous, comparison between Interview with a Vampire and The Shape of Water. Both are movies featuring characters that are strange and monstrous. Both include scenes of being terrorized by the monstrous creatures, and both have plots that explore the personhood of those same creatures. But The Shape of Water isn't horror, and Interview with a Vampire is. In Interview with a Vampire, the elements that make it horrific is that the character Lestat, an older vampire, has cut his moorings with any responsibility of morality to humanity, while his reluctant vampire protege, Louis, has not, and struggles deciding if his new existence is a blessing or a curse. Louis is at once a monster, by inescapable condition, and Lestat, a monster twice, by same condition but also action. Finding yourself faced with the reality that those you loved are now by necessity your food, and feeling your own humanity slip away through that circumstance, that's horror. And I've got a couple of horror stories for you tonight. Nicole J. LeBuff Little is a New Orleans writer living in Boulder, Colorado, where she spends almost all of her non-writing time skating roller derby with the Boulder County Bombers under the name Florida de Beast. In addition to short stories like this one, she produces near-weekly flash fiction as part of her Friday Fictionettes project at www.patreon.com slash Nicole J. Lebuff. She blogs at www.nicolejlebuff.com. Links to both will be in the show notes. It is now time for Nicole J. LeBuff Little's First Breath, which appeared originally in Blood and Other Cravings, September 13, 2011, which was edited by Ellen Datlow and published by Tor Books.
2: It was time I went in search of myself. Everyone has to do it once in their lives. Each of my parents had, years before, and now I felt the pull that said it was my turn, time to make my own pilgrimage. They saw me off, standing in front of the house and watching me drift down the road. "'Remember what we taught you,' my mother said. "'One foot in front of the other, you'll do fine.' "'Hurry home as soon as you can,' said my father, a wry smile hiding the sadness of parting. "'You'll want to be here when the baby arrives.' "'I could only nod, looking first from face to face, "'then down at the place where my unborn sibling waited "'to be breathed into life. "'I wanted to take their hands. "'I wanted to hold them and never let go. "'But I couldn't touch them. "'I could not even speak. "'Not yet.' I've stopped counting the jello shots and I'm starting to lose the spaces between the seconds, if you know what I mean, when the girl shows up right in front of me, the strange one. I've been noticing her on and off throughout the evening, the only person in the bar I've never seen before. My guess is she's just some dumb rich kid up from the flats on a cheap time, share week finding out the hard way what all us locals know. There's nothing to do in mud season Ski resorts are closed. Everyone's bored out of our skulls and broke. When I first spotted her, I grabbed Mac and pointed. Who's the chick in the gray hoodie? You know her? Mac just went, who? Like he couldn't see her. And he probably couldn't. I actually did count his jello shots before I started on mine. He likes the orange ones. Robbie makes them with the 190-proof Everclear. He makes the red ones, my favorites, with pepper vodka, and I guess I've downed at least ten, because I have to squint to focus, even though the girl's right here. First things I see are her legs, bare, right up to mid-thigh where the hoodie ends. I can't make out much more of her than that, just the tip of her nose and her mouth. She's smiling this weird sort of amazed smile, probably tripping on acid or E or something, which is why I'm annoyed but not really surprised when she grabs my hand and starts playing with my fingers. Naturally, I try to yank my hand away, but she hangs on, so I end up pulling her off balance and into my lap. Now she's got both her hands on me, feeling her way up my arm like she's never seen an arm before. I roll my eyes and put up with it, until she grabs my left boob, and then I've had enough. I slap her hand away. What the hell are you doing? She sits there in my lap, examining her wrist from every angle, like she's trying to see if I left a mark. If I weren't so drunk, I'd have dumped her on the floor by now. As it is, I can't seem to get up the momentum. She touches her own face, then mine, then... What the hell? She says and kisses me. For just an instant, I'm thinking, oh God, another idiot who thinks she's by when she's stoned. Then the thought dissolves away until there's nothing left but, oh God. It's like something inside me, something I never knew existed but I can't survive without, rises up and goes spinning out of me and into her. When she pulls away, I can't stop myself. I grab hold of her, pull her back down, make her kiss me again, just to try to get that piece of myself back. It doesn't work. I'm even more lost than before. It takes every shred of concentration just to ask her, Who are you? As she runs her fingers through my hair against my scalp. Something's weird about that. I can feel my head resting against the back of the couch. There's no room between my head and the orange velvet upholstery for her hand to be there, stroking from my hairline to the nape of my neck and making my arms explode in goosebumps. I'll try again. What's your name? She leans in close, lays her cheek alongside mine. What's your name? Right in my ear, licking it. The smell of her hair is sweet and slightly bitter, like some place far away I'll never see. I answer her on automatic, Jen, and then God, leaps out of my mouth as her teeth pierce my earlobe. The pain clears my head for a moment. I'm conscious of the warm, wet blossom of blood that drips like melted wax onto my shoulder, and of the absurd and... Slightly scary fact that I'm pinned under the body of a stranger, and she's hurt me. I push at her, whatever I can reach, but I'm too drunk to have much effect. In fact, I'm so drunk that her knee, what little of it I can see around her hair in my face, seems to be passing right through the couch cushion. She licks up the blood in two slow swipes. And the sudden clarity is just as suddenly gone. I can't think. She kisses me again with my blood on her teeth. More of me vanishes into her. I open my mouth wider so she can take whatever she wants. Jen, you okay? Mac's voice. Jen. Christ, Robbie. How many shots did you give her? You should talk, Mac. You aren't driving home, are you? Nah, walking. So she, thank God. Someone, Mac, gives my shoulder a rough shake. Jen, you okay? Can you hear me? A little busy now. I mumble around the lips that are slowly killing me. He doesn't seem to hear me. Jen, sweetie, maybe you should go home. Can you walk okay? The girl climbs off me and holds out her hand. Her smile is beautific. Yeah, I say to Mac, unable to take my eyes from the girl's lips. Yeah. Going home, I let her lead me out of the bar and into the parking lot. The 15 minutes it would take to get to my place seems an unbearably long time to wait. On the far side of the parking lot, I try to step up onto the grass and somehow I miss the curb. The girl catches me as I stumble. She nearly falls herself. We sway together against the back of Robbie's camper-top pickup truck. And now there's no question of walking to my place or anywhere else. She's at me again, like you would attack your first meal after the rescue copters get you out of the avalanche, and your hunger is a prayer of thanks. She's pulling my tank top over my head, ripping at my bra. It's cold, an early October snow just picking up speed, but I don't stop her. I reach to help her out of that hoodie of hers, only to find it's gone already, just disappeared, bare skin under my hands. I open my eyes and look into her face at last. Her face? It's my face. She stares back at me with my own eyes. Her cheek, marred by that same patchy birthmark I've hated all my life. Her ear still wearing a clotted bead of my blood. That smile, I only found it so weird on her because it was so familiar. I stare at the living mirror before me, and my hands fall limp at my sides to rest helpless on the truck's tailgate. Only they don't. They pass right through. A chill sweeps my body like I wouldn't wish on anyone It turns my stomach and stops my breath. I sag and start to fall, and the back of Robbie's truck doesn't stop me. I move through its plastic and metal like a ghost. So does she. She dives forward to catch me, pulls me out into the clear, kneels with me in the snow. I cling to her solidity, and she rocks me in her arms. And then I try to scream because now she's fading. I can't touch her anymore. And I can't touch the air either. So no sound comes out of my mouth after all. No one had told me how much it would hurt. Remember, they had said, don't get distracted. It's hard not to, experiencing physical sensations for the first time. It can be dangerously fascinating. Fascinating? Earth underfoot, it was more than fascinating. Jen's skin on mine was meat and drink to me. It was mother song and burnt offerings at dusk. I wanted it never to end. But it did. It had to. I knew that it had to. My parents had told me what to expect. Jen faded in my arms, becoming insubstantial as mist. A spasm seized my throat, making me gasp, and I breathed her in. She was gone. Fascinating. Distracted. Oh, yes. But no one had warned me that I would love her. When my parents had recounted their own pilgrimages years gone by, they had never told me that their first tangible breath had been to weep. I don't know how long I knelt there, alone in the snow, surrounded by Jen's abandoned clothes. Her socks seemed particularly forlorn, half in and half out of her shoes. Her name stuttered uncontrollably off my lips. Her lips. My name now to remember her by. Her name was mine, and her voice to speak it with. Her clothes were now mine. I remembered I was supposed to put them on. Leave nothing behind. Besides, it was cold out. I could feel the cold sinking its teeth into Jen's body. My body, inch by inch. I could feel. I could pick up a handful of snow. I could wear real clothes of solid fabric. Never again need the gray imaginings that habit of thought had dressed me in for years. I could touch. I could breathe. My sobs stilled, simply because they made me aware of the miracle that I could cry. Maybe that's why no one mentions the grief. It's gone so soon, replaced by joy. Jen, I said again, and then spoke the first words I could call my own. Thank you. I couldn't quite manage the shoes. The knowledge of them had come into my head with everything else, but... I had little experience thus far using fingers. The cold made them clumsier still, putting the puzzle of hooks and eyelets and laces out of my reach. I carried the shoes instead, and the pain of snow on my stocking feet was the most precious thing to me during that long walk to Jen's apartment. Walking, at least, I'd practiced. One foot in front of the other, Gravity had become a surprisingly rough playmate, and the alcohol gen system didn't help, but I made a good start. It got easier, step by slow, careful step. You'll probably find your way back without trouble, they had said. Usually it's a matter of hours. It might take longer, but that's rare. Longer? How much longer? But don't worry about that. Just live her life for however long it takes until the way home opens for you. Days, months of Jen's life stretched out in my imagined future. Each died in the colors of boredom, slowly sinking under the weight of years. Trapped in the same two miles of tourists and ski slopes, and the same people doing the same thing through the unrelenting sameness of endless seasons. But my pilgrimage ended as ordinarily as I could have hoped. I got to Jen's apartment within the hour, fumbled it open with the key from her jeans pocket, and, simply as a dream, found myself walking into my parents' house. They were in the bedroom, my parents, Daya upon the bed and hard into advanced labor. Avel knelt beside her, both his hands enclosing hers. It was dim in there for Daya's comfort, but I could clearly see the sweat glistening in sheets upon her dark brown face. The breath whistled thinly in and out of her, a terrifying sound. Yet her gaze rose to meet mine. Alerted by her smile, Abel turned. Moments later, I was in his arms. At first, he simply held me and I felt the uneven rise and fall of his chest that told me he was crying. I was crying, too. Finally, he held me out at arm's length and looked me over with grave, careful attention, as though seeing me for the first time. I suppose he was. What had I looked like to him, to either of them, all these years? A gray ghost, seen but never heard, communicating by Blurred hand signs, they must have strained their eyes to read. No more. I could speak now. But Avel gave me a stern look, and I remembered what my first words upon homecoming needed to be. Avel, my mother, I said, behold, your song made flesh. He smiled. It is a beautiful song, he said. Then he brought me to the bedside and addressed the woman laboring there. Daya, father of our child. See the breath you breathed into me. It is a beautiful breath we breathed together. She said it strong, despite her travail. What name has our breath brought home? Jen, I told them. Names are important. They're how we remember. Her name was Jen. Is, Daya corrected me. Her name is Jen. And it is a good name. Then she gasped, her smile sliding sharply out of sight. "'Bone and blood! Oh, see, indeed! The breath you breathed into me!' Avel caressed her brow. "'Now love. Did I complain so when I lay there, laboring with our Jen?' "'You did. You complained more.' "'Then it is a good thing we didn't conceive twins, isn't it?' Avel chuckled. "'Imagine Jen coming home to that scene, both of us lying here, complaining and cursing.' Earth forfend! I deliver this child on a curse. But it was only mock horror. Daya had found strength to laugh again. I was too dazed to join in the joke. Alveil had used my name so easily, so naturally. I sank to my knees beside him, the things in my heart too big for my newfound words. I laid my hands upon Daya's belly where the unborn child moved like an extra breath between Daya's breaths. Avel's hand closed upon my shoulder. Jen, he said, carefully and clearly, tell me what troubles you. Finally, it burst out of me, and the words when they came were so simple. I loved her. It hurt so much. Oh, Jen, murmured Daya. She placed her hand over mine. But why didn't you warn me? I found myself shouting, anger burning through my tears. You both made it sound so technical, so practical. Do this. Don't do that. Rules. Why didn't you tell me it would break my heart? The sadness in Avel's eyes shamed me then. What could I have said? What would you have done had you known? Hardened your heart against her? Become a predator devouring prey? Staged it as a tragedy in which you played the starring role? No. He squeezed my shoulder. You both deserved love, and there's no preparing you for that. We could only have ruined it by trying. But what good is love when it killed her? No. Daya's voice, strained as it was, allowed no argument. She is with you, in you, Always. She punctuated that with a fierce grip on my hand. She will live in your children and their children. Avel touched my face, tracing the curve of my cheek. I can see him so clearly in you, he said. In my imagination, he doubled, stood face to face with himself, that other man who had held a life safe and waiting for him to claim how much I loved him. It makes me love you that much more. A cry from the bed, sharp and surprised, Daya flung her head back against the pillows and drew a breath, and kept drawing it on and on. It seemed she would never stop, not until she had inhaled every bit of the Earth's atmosphere and become herself a planet with her own weather patterns, her own seas. Abel's hands and mine rose with the profound expansion of her belly. Then, at the crest of the wave, she held that great breath, creating a moment of stillness in which I held mine also. In silence, she smiled at us, the smile of a goddess telling her people, be not afraid. I gripped Avel's hand tightly and watched Daya's lips. She opened her mouth and breathed that great breath out, and my sister And substantial as a mist was born
1: That was Nicole J Lebuff Little's first breath as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a bodran that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador, and, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. Thank you, Michelle. FlushCare.com slash weight loss.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Our second story has a bit of a mystery to it. It is a classic piece, and it has a bit of fame to it but neither Scott Silk or I could easily come up with a single bit of biographical information about the author. Tonight you will hear Victoria Glad's classic vampire story, Each Man Kills, which originally appeared in Weird Tales, March 1951.
3: To live, you must feed on the living. Now that it's all over, it seems like a bad dream. But when I look at Maria's picture on my desk, I realize it couldn't have been a dream. Actually, it was only six months ago that I sat at this same desk, looking at her picture, wondering what could have happened to her. It had been six weeks since there had been any word from her, and she had promised to write as soon as she arrived in Europe. Considering that my future rested in her small hands, I had every right to be apprehensive. We had grown up together, had lost our folks within a few years of each other, and had been fond of each other the way kids are apt to be. Then the change came. It seemed I loved her, and she was still just fond of me. During our early college days, I sort of let things ride, but once we went on to graduate school... I began to crowd her. The next thing I knew, she had signed up with a student tour destined for Central Europe and told me she would give me my answer when she returned. I had to be content with that, but I couldn't help worrying. Maria was a strange girl, withdrawn, dreamy, and soft-hearted. Knowing the section she was going to, I was inclined to be uneasy, since it is the realm of gypsies, fortune-tellers, and the like. It is also the birthplace of many strange legends, and Maria claimed to be strongly psychic. As a matter of fact, she had foretold one or two things which were probably coincidental, like the death of our parents, and which even made an impression on me, and you'd hardly call me a believer. This so-called talent of hers led her into trouble on more than one occasion, I remember in her senior year at college, she fell under the spell of a short, fat, greasy spook reader with a strictly phony accent and all but gave her eye teeth away. Until I realized something was amiss, got to the bottom of it and dispatched friend spook reader pronto. If she should meet some unscrupulous person now with no one around her to get her out of the scrape. But I didn't want to think of that. I was sure this time everything would be all right. When she didn't write at first, I let it go that she was busy. Finally, six weeks' silent treatment aroused my curiosity. It also aroused my nasty temper, and the next thing I knew I was on a plane bound for the continent. Within two hours after landing, I found her at a little inn in Transylvania, quaint little place that looked as if it were made of gingerbread and was surrounded by the huge, craggy Transylvania mountain range. I also found Todd Hunter. "'What's wrong, Maria? Why didn't you write?' I asked. Her usually gay, shining brown eyes flashed angrily. "'Why couldn't you leave me alone? I told you not to come after me. I came here so I could think this out. For God's sake, Bill!' Can't you see I wanted to think, to be by myself? But you promised to write, I persisted, wondering at this change in her, this impatience. Wondered, too, at her wraith-like slimness. She'd always been curved in the right places. Maria has been studying much too diligently. Todd said slowly, she's always tired lately. She hasn't been too well either. Her throat bothers her. I wanted to punch his head in. For some reason, I didn't like him. Not because I sensed his rivalry. I was above that. God knows I wanted her to be happy above everything. It was just something about him that irritated me. An attitude. Not supercilious. I could have coped with that. Rather, it was a calm imperturbability that seemed to speak his faith in his eventual success, regardless of any effort on my part. I don't know how to fight that sort of strategy. I look like I am, blunt and obvious. Suddenly, I didn't care if he was there. Maria, Ria, darling, this guy's no good for you. Can't you see that? What do you know about him? She looked at me, her eyes surprised and a little hurt. Then she looked at him, seemed to be looking through him and into herself, if you know what I mean. A slow flush spread from the base of her throat, that thin, almost transparent throat. "'All I have to know,' she said softly. "'I love him.' She looked out the window. "'I'm going up into Konigstein Mountain, to a small sanitarium for my health shortly. The doctor has told me I must go away, and Todd has suggested this place. There, Todd and I shall be married.' I knew then how it felt to be on the receiving end of a monkey punch. That she had come to this decision because of my objections, I had not the slightest doubt. She was going to marry someone about whom she knew absolutely nothing. She was much more ill than she knew. Hunter was undoubtedly after her money. She was considerably well off. Obviously, she was once more being influenced in the wrong direction. I won't let you, I warned. Give it some time, if for nothing else, then for old time's sake. How about me, Morris? Todd interrupted. You haven't asked me my feelings on the subject. I happen to love Maria dearly. Have I no say just because you're a childhood friend of hers? Childhood friend? I was her whole family for years before she ever heard of you. I'll see you in hell before I let you marry her, I shouted. Looking back, I'm sure that had he said anything else, I would have killed him, if Rhea hadn't come between us. That's enough, Bill Morris. I've heard all I want to from you. I'm 23, and if I choose to marry Todd, I'll do so, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, please, go. Okay, Rhea, I said, if that's the way you want it. But I'm not through. If you won't protect yourself, I'll do it for you. I'd like to know more about the mysterious Mr. Todd Hunter, American, and I do wish, for your own sake, you'd do the same. I wouldn't care if you married King Tut, so long as you knew all about him. People just don't marry strangers, not if they're smart. For God's sake, ask him about himself. All right, Bill, she replied, smiling patiently. I'll ask him. Now, do stop being childish. Okay, darling, I said sheepishly. But do me one more favor. Don't marry him until I get back. Only a little while. Give me a week. Just wait a little longer. As I closed the door, I could still feel his smile, mocking, yet a little sad. But Maria didn't wait. I was gone a week I had walked my legs off trying to track down the elusive Mr. Hunter and discovered exactly nothing. All his landlady could tell me was that he was an American who had come to this climate for his health and that he slept late mornings. I was licked and I knew it. If I had been a pup, I would have fitted my tail neatly between my legs and made for home. But I wasn't a pup, so I headed straight for Ria's flat to face the music. They were waiting for me she and Todd. When I saw her, I wished I were dead. She lay in Todd's arms, her body a mere whisper of a body. White and cold she was, like frozen milk on a cold winter's day. They were both dead. You know how it is when at a wake someone views the deceased and says kindly, she's beautiful, and she isn't beautiful at all, just a made-up, lifeless handful of clay? dead as dead and frightening. Well, it wasn't that way this time. Their fair skins were faintly pink-tinted, and their blonde heads, hers ashen and his a reddish cast, gleamed brightly. And they sat so close in the sofa before the fire, his head resting in the hollow of her throat. They looked peaceful. No line marred their faces. I almost fancied I saw them breathe and on her third finger, left hand, was the ring, a thin platinum band. He had won, and in winning, somehow he had lost. How they had died and why they found each other and death at the same time, I would probably never know. I only knew one thing. I had to get away from there, quickly. I almost ran the distance to my flat, stumbled into the place, and poured a triple scotch, which I could scarcely hold. The scotch seared my throat and tasted bitter. Someone must have poured salt in it. Then I realized it was tears. My tears. I, Bill Morris, who hadn't cried since my fifth birthday, I was sobbing like a baby. I didn't call the police. That would mean I would have to go back and watch them cover that lovely body, carry it away and submit it to untold indignities in order to ascertain the cause of death. The cleaning girl would find them in the morning and would notify the police. But it wasn't so simple as that. In the morning, I found I couldn't shake off the guilt which possessed me. Even two bottles of scotch hadn't helped me forget. I was dead drunk and cold sober at the same time. I phoned Rhea's landlady and told her I had failed to reach the hunters by phone, that I was sure something was amiss. Would she please go to their flat and see if anything was wrong? She was amused. Really, Mr. Morris, you must be mistaken. Miss Maria went out just an hour ago with her new husband. Surely you are jesting. Why, she has never looked better. So happy. They have left for Königstein. They have also left you a note. I told her I would be right over and hopped a cab. I began to think I was losing my mind. I had seen them both dead. The landlady had seen them this morning, alive. When I arrived, the landlady looked at me for a long moment, taking in my rough, dark blue complexion, unpressed clothes, red-rimmed eyes, then wagger a finger playfully. You are playing a joke, no? A wedding joke, maybe? Here, too. We haze newlyweds. But of course I understood. Who could help loving Miss Moria? be of good heart young man for you there will be another some day but i talk too much here is your letter i went where i would be undisturbed to the reading room of the library on the same street as my flat to the musty oblong dimly lit room whose threshold sunshine and fresh air dared not cross without the saving warmth of the sunlight or the fresh clean relief of sweet-smelling air i read read "'inhaling the pungent, sour smell of the scotch "'I had consumed during the long, sleepless night. "'Read, and then doubted that I had read it all. "'But the blue ink on the white paper "'forced me to acknowledge its actuality. "'It had been written by Hunter in a neat scholar's script. "'Dear Morris,' it began, "'Why should I not have wanted Maria? "'You did. Others doubtless did.' Why, then, should she not be mine? There are many things worse than being married to me. She might have married a man who beat her. With her I have known the two happiest days of my life. I want no more than that. I have no right to ask for more. Have we, any of us, a right to endless bliss on this earth? Hardly. You thought of her welfare above all. For that I owe you some explanation." You must be patient, you must believe, and in the end, you must do as I ask. You must. You wanted to know about me, of my life before Maria. Before Maria? It seems strange to think about it. There is no life without Maria. Still, there was a time when, for me, she didn't exist. I have been constantly going forward to the day when I would meet her. Yet there was a time when I didn't know where I would find her, or even what her name would be. It was chance that brought us together. For me, good chance. For you, possibly ill chance. For Maria, only she can say. Some three years ago, I was studying in England under a Rhodes Scholarship. The future held great things for me. I was a Yank like yourself and damn proud of it. Life in England seemed strange and slow and sometimes utterly dismal under austerity. Then, little by little, I slipped into their slower ways, growing to love the people for their spunk, and finally coming to feel I was one of them, so to speak. I have said everything slowed down. I was wrong. Studying intensified for me. The folklore of the British Isles intrigued me. I delved into the black Welsh tales, the mischievous fancies of the Irish, the English legends of the prowling werewolf. For me it was a relief from political science, which suddenly palled and which smacked of treason in the light of current events. My extracurricular research consumed the better part of my evenings. My books were and always have been a part of me, and as was to be expected, I overdid it. I studied too hard with too little let-up. Sometimes it seemed to me there was more truth to what I read than myth. It became somewhat of an obsession. Suddenly, one night, everything blacked out. I came to in a sanatorium. I didn't know how I got there, and when they explained it to me, I laughed. I thought they were joking. When I tried to get up to walk, I collapsed. Then I knew how bad it had been. I knew, too, I would have to go slowly. It was there I met Eve. She was beautiful, not like Maria, who is like a fragile, fair, spun-sugar angel. Eve was more earthly, with skin like ivory, creamy and rich and pale. Her blue-black hair she wore long and gathered in the back. She looked about twenty-five, but a streak of pure white ran from each of her temples. She was the most striking woman I have ever met. I had never known anyone like her, nor have I since I saw her last. You know how it is. The air of mystery about a woman makes a man like a kid again. She reminded me of a sleek black cat with her large hazel eyes. I bumped into her one day on the veranda and spent every day with her after that. The doctors wanted me to take exercise, short walks and the like. And Eve went with me, struggling to keep up with me. The slightest effort tired her. She suffered from a rather nasty case of anemia. She seldom smiled. The effort was probably too much for her. I saw her really smile only once. We had been on one of our short hikes in the woods, close by the grounds. She stumbled over a twig or a branch, I'm not sure which. Suddenly she was in my arms. Have you ever held a cloud in your arms, Morris? So light she was, although she was almost as tall as I, warm and pulsating. Her eyes held mine. It was almost uncanny. I have never been affected like that by a woman. Then I was kissing her. Then a sharp sting, and I winced. There was the warm, salt taste of blood on my lips. I never knew how it happened, but she was smiling. Her full mouth parted in the strangest smile I have ever seen, and those small white teeth gleamed, and in her eyes, which were all black pupils now, with the irises quite hidden, was desire, or something beyond desire. I couldn't define it then. Now I think I can. Her small pink tongue darted over her lips, tasting, seeming to save her. I was frightened for some indefinable reason. I wanted to get away from her, from the woods, from myself. I grasped her arm roughly and we started back for the grounds. We never mentioned the episode again, but we neither of us ever forgot. She intrigued me now more than ever. The doctors were able to satisfy my curiosity somewhat. They told me she had been a patient for some four years. Some days she was better, some days worse. She needed rest, much rest. Most days she slept past noon with their approval. Some days there was a faint flush beneath that ivory skin. Other days it was pale and cool. Just when we became lovers, I scarcely remember. Things were happening so fast I could barely keep pace with them. There was a magnetism about Eve which compelled. I couldn't have resisted if I'd wanted to, and I didn't. I began to have long periods of lassitude, times when I would black out and remember nothing afterwards. And the dreams began. I would dream I was stroking a large, velvety black cat a cat with shining yellow eyes that looked at me as if they knew my every thought. I would stroke it continuously, and it would nip me playfully. Then, one night, the dream intensified. I was playing with the creature, caressing it gently, when, all of a sudden, its lips drew back in a snarl, and without warning, it sprang at my throat and buried its fangs deep. I thought I could feel life being drawn from me, I screamed. The doctors told me afterwards that I was semi-conscious for days, that I had to be restrained. When I was well again, Eve came to see me. She was gentle, soothing. She held me close to her, and oh, it was good to be alive and to belong to someone. I remember to this day what she wore black velvet lounging slacks, a low-necked amber satin blouse, caught at the V by a curiously wrought antique silver pin. It was round, about four inches in diameter. In its center was the carved figure of a serpent coiled to strike. Its eyes were deep amber topazes, and its darting tongue was raised and set with a blood-red ruby. What an unusual pin, Eve! I said, I've never seen it before, have I? No, she replied. It belongs to the deep, dark, seldom-discussed skeleton in the Okazi closet, Todd. You see, my great-great-grandmother was quite a wicked lady, to hear tell. Went in for witches' masses and the like. They say she poisoned her husband, a rather elderly and very childish man, for her lover, whom she subsequently married— Together they did away with relatives who stood in the way of their accumulating more money. This pin was the instrument of death. Her slim fingers pressed the ruby tongue and the pin opened, revealing a space large enough to secrete powder. It's like those employed by the infamous bourgeois. As you can see, she continued, shrugging, Perhaps it was fate, then, that her devoted new husband, tired of her once her fortune was assured him, took a young mistress for himself and disposed of the unfortunate wife, using her own pin to perpetrate her murder. She was excommunicated by her church, too, which must have made it most unpleasant for her. Poor old dear! The slim shoulder straightened. But let's not discuss such unpleasant things, my dear. The important thing now is for you to get well quickly. I've missed you terribly, you know. It was then I asked her to marry me. I knew I didn't really love her, but there seemed nothing to prevent our marriage, and she had gotten under my skin. It was as elemental as that. She said she thought we should wait until I fully recovered. Don't say any more, darling, she said. Rest your poor, sore throat. She bent over me solicitously, and I reached up to stroke that smooth, black hair. It had a familiar feel to it that I couldn't quite place. Of course I had stroked it hundreds of times before, but it wasn't that. Then she looked straight at me those large, glowing, hazel eyes boring into mine, and I knew, knew and disbelieved at the same time. I froze where I lay, paralyzed by my fear, unable to make a sound. So you know, she whispered. It is well. I have mocked you for my own these many months. Now that you know, you will not fight. You know what I am. Or at least you can guess. This pin you admired so? It was mine three hundred years ago, and it will always be mine. Her lips were on mine. She had never kissed me like this. It was like the touch of hot ice, freezing, then searing, unendurable. I lay inert. I couldn't have moved if I wanted to. I could scarcely breathe. Then I felt the blood within me pounding, pulsing, beginning to answer in spite of myself. I tasted once more the warm, salty fluid on my lips. Eve's body was liquid in my arms, warm, heady, narcotizing. Once again, I felt the agonizing, dagger-sharp pain in my throat and darkness. Have you ever wakened to a bright, sunny afternoon and heard yourself pronounced dead? They spoke in low, hushed tones. How unfortunate. Young fellow, only thirty, dying so far away from his homeland. No family. Good thing he was well set in life. This sudden anemia was most extraordinary. Fellow showed no signs of it previously. All he had really needed was rest. If he had recovered, that lovely Eve Orkazi might have made both their lives happier, richer sad ending to what might have been an idol. Good of her to claim the body. She said she was going to inter it in the family vault in Konigstein Mountain, in Transylvania. I heard them, distinctly. I wanted to shout that I wasn't dead. I wanted to wake up from this horrible nightmare. I was as alive as they. I knew I had to get out of there, some way, to get away from Eve, whom I now feared. They left to make arrangements. The lassitude crept through me without warning. I dozed in spite of myself, and I dreamed again. I was a cat running, leaping through windows, loping over the countryside, stopping for no one. I panted with my exertions. Towns and cities flew by. I had to get someplace and quickly. Then the dream ended. Todd, she said, get up, my dear. I heard her, and I hated her, hated her while I was drawn to her. There was a white mist before my eyes. I reached up to brush it away. It was not a mist. It was a cloth. I shivered. I must wake up, I whispered hoarsely. I must. I'm going mad. There was a creaking sound, and daylight descended upon me. When I saw where I was, I covered my face with my hands and sobbed. I tried to pray, but the words froze on my lips. I was sitting in a coffin in a mausoleum. I had been buried alive. What am I? I shrieked. Where am I? And what have you done? I'm out of my mind, stark, staring, mad. Eve's lips parted, showing the even white teeth, those slightly pointed teeth. "'You're quite sane, my dear,' she said calmly. "'You are now one of us, a revenant even as I, and to live you must feed on the living.' "'It's not true,' I shouted. "'This is all a crazy nightmare, part of my illness. You're not real. Nothing is real.' "'I'm quite real, Todd.' To be trite, I am what I am, and I have accepted it calmly, as you shall in time. I have told you of my life. You have been a student of legends. Legends are often, more often than you think, reality. When one has been murdered, if one has lived a so-called wicked life, he is doomed to walk the earth, battening on the living. My fate was sealed as I lay in my coffin, but that wasn't enough. As I lay there, my pet cat, Suma slunk into the room and leapt over me. That was a double insurance of my life after death. Those whom I mark for my own must, too, live on. Accept it, my dear. You have no other choice. No! I cried. I'm an American. Things like this do not happen to us. It's only in stories, and then to foreigners. She chuckled dryly. I'm afraid these things do happen, and in this case you're it, my dear. Make the best of it. But I wouldn't. I refused to. For a while. I would not feast on the blood of the living. Something within me fought. For a time. Then the awful hunger began, the tearing pangs of hunger that ordinary food wouldn't arrest. I fought it for as long as I could. I lost. First, it was small animals, animals that I loved. It was my life or theirs. Then there was a little girl, a dear little creature who might have been my child under different circumstances. After the episode of The Little Girl, Eve left me. She had no further use for me. She had wanted the child, too, and I had got it. I was now competition to be shunned. I was alone once again, alone and thoroughly miserable. I couldn't understand myself, my motives, so how could I expect someone else to understand? I only knew what I was, nor could I rationalize on why I had become this way. I could only presume it had happened to others equally as innocent as myself of wrongdoing. In the daytime, when I was like others, I reproached myself. Goodness knows I loathed myself and what I had to do in order to live I wished I might really die, for I was tired, so frightfully tired and sick of it all. But I knew of no way to accomplish this, so I had to bear it all, fasting until my voracious, disgusting appetites got the better of me. I decided there must be some information on my kind, particularly in this area where vampire legends are rife, so I took to haunting reading rooms It was there I met Maria. She told me, after we knew each other better, that she was doing graduate work in regional superstitions and that her thesis would treat of the history of vampirism. She found it terribly amusing, but at the same time frightening, didn't I? I fear I saw nothing laughable about it, but I held my peace. Why, I could have done a thesis for her that would have driven some mild-mannered prof completely out of his mind. I kept my knowledge to myself, though. I didn't want to scare Maria. She was like a flash of sunshine in a darkened room. She made each day worth living. For the first time, the hunger pangs ceased. Ceased for one week, then two. I was certain I was cured. Perhaps, I thought, the whole thing was just a dream, and I am finally awake. I felt then I had the right to tell her of my love. She looked infinitely sad. She wasn't certain, she said. She knew she was awfully fond of me, but she was confused. She had just come away from the States, trying to make up her mind about someone dear, whom she didn't want to hurt, and she wanted a breather. I said I would wait up to and through eternity, if she wished. Things went along peacefully then. We would walk for hours together, walk in complete silence and understanding. My strength seemed to be returning more day by day. We went far afield in search of material for her thesis. She would track down the most minute speck of hearsay to get authenticity One day, in our wanderings, I thoughtlessly let myself be led too near my resting place. One of the locals mentioned a place of horror nearby, and Maria wanted to investigate. I had no choice. We poked amid the still fustiness of that deserted mausoleum I knew so well. She thought it odd that the door was unlocked. I said, yes, wasn't it? Then she saw the box, that gleaming copper box which Eve had so thoughtfully provided. She stroked it gently, commenting on its beauty, and before I could prevent it or divert her attention, she had lifted the heavy lid, exposing the disarranged shroud, the remains of one or two hapless small creatures, the horrible blood-stained satin lining. She screamed and dropped the lid, somehow pinching her finger. She hopped on one foot, as one does to fight down sudden pain. Then she was clinging to me, thoroughly frightened. What does it mean, Todd? I quieted her with the usual platitudes. Then I was kissing that poor, red little finger. Without warning to myself or her, I nipped it affectionately. A warm glow spread through me. There was a taste more delightful than fine old brandy or vintage wine, and I knew irrevocably that I was not cured, no, nor ever should be. And I knew, too, that I wanted Maria, not just as a man longs for the woman he loves, but to drink of the fountain of her life, that warm, intoxicating fountain, greedily, joyously. She never knew what went through my mind at that moment, If I could have killed myself, then I would have, and with no compunction. But there is no more killing a revenant than that. The church knows the procedure. I hurried Maria home as fast as I could and told her I had to go away for a week on business. She believed me and said she would miss me. But I didn't go away. That night I fought a losing battle with myself, and then and every night thereafter I returned to her partook of her, and slunk away, loathing myself. I knew that I must soon kill the one thing I loved above all others, kill, to her immortal soul, and there was nothing I could do to prevent it. She began to fade visibly. When I returned in a week, she was so ill that a few steps tired her. Her appetite all but vanished. She seemed genuinely glad to see me, She was beset by nightmares, she said. Could I help her get some rest? I took her to a physician who sagely prescribed a change in climate, rest, and a diet rich in blood and iron. Gave her a prescription for sedatives and called it a day. You know how she looked when you saw her. The day was approaching when she would have no more blood. When life as you know it would stop and she would become like me. Somehow, I couldn't take her with me without some warning, but I didn't know how to do it. You see, since I was an innocent victim myself, I could speak, could warn my intended victim, because although my soul had all but died, there was still a spark that evil hadn't touched. I knew she would think it a joke if I told her about myself without warning. Then, happily for me, you came along. I knew you would sense something amiss, and I didn't care. I was almost certain of her love, and I decided to seize the few minutes left me and devil take the hindmost. When you told her to confront me, you gave me the happiest days of my life. For this, I thank you sincerely. For what I have done, and will ask you to do, forgive me. Maria asked me directly, as you had known she would. I replied frankly, sparing her nothing. I told her that the fact that this life had been wished on me, as it were, gave me some rights, and that I could tell her how to rid herself of me if she wished. Then she turned to me, her large, lovely eyes thoughtful. Todd, dearest, she said softly, I must die some day, really die. So what difference does it make when? I only know that I love you. Why wait until I'm decrepit and alone, with only a few memories to look back on? Why not now, with you, where life doesn't really stop? With all I've read about this, don't you think I could free myself if I wished? I still wonder if she really believed me. We were married three days later. I never told her what her life with me would be like. That one day I would desert her, fearing and hating her rivalry for the very source of my life. And the ghastly chain would continue. I couldn't. I loved her so, Morris. Can you understand that? I couldn't betray her then, and I can't now. On the second night of our marriage, she died, as you know it, in my arms. I don't think she knows it yet. But it won't be long until she does discover it. We were quite alive when you found us. She was in a hypnotic state, induced by her condition. She heard and saw nothing, but I knew. And I must keep my faith. I must, and you are the only one who can help me. If you will show this to a priest, he will gladly accompany you to the place in Konigstein, where we rest during the morning in a new bed, I had specially constructed for us. I couldn't bring Maria to that other bed of corruption. A map of how to get there is enclosed. There you will perform the ancient effective rites, and you will lay us to rest together as we wish. That is all I ask. When I had finished reading, I stared at nothing, trying to force myself to think. This was all he asked in substance, he wished me to murder the girl I loved. I could refuse. I could ignore his request. I could even doubt the verity of his statements. He might be a madman, but I didn't doubt. I believed every word, and I knew I would do as he asked. That she had gone willingly, I didn't doubt. I no longer hated him so much. Rather, I pitied him, the hapless victim of a horrible chain of circumstance. I found the priest a venerable, gentle soul after much searching. The younger men had looked at me searchingly, laughed and told me to go read the good book for consolation and to lay off the bottle. Father Coleman was understanding with the wisdom of the very old. Yes, my son, he said, I will go. Many might doubt, but I believe Lucifer roams the earth in many guises, and must be recognized and exercised it was five o'clock in the morning when we approached the mausoleum. The good father explained that the creatures of darkness had to be back in their resting-places before the cock crew at night. They drew sustenance during the morning. they slept. There was a gleaming copper casket. Todd had not lied. We approached it warily in it was nothing but grisly remains bloodstains, and dust. We drew back, fearful. Then we saw the other, newer casket in richest mahogany, almost twice the width of the copper box, their bridal bed. They lay together, his arm about her. She wore a gown of palest blue, but, oh, that mockery of a gown! Stained it was with the fresh blood which had seeped onto it from him. Obviously, she had not taken to prowling yet. His mouth was dark, rich with blood, slightly open in a half-smile. His hand pressed her fair head close to his chest. She lay trustingly within the circle of his arm, like a small child. The priest crossed himself. The bodies twitched slightly. You know what you must do, Father Coleman whispered. I nodded, the pit of my stomach churning madly. I couldn't do it. Not Maria the Lovely but I knew I would. I had to. She must not wake again to see that blood-stained gown or to wonder at her husband's gory lips. She should know rest, eternal rest. Father Kalman circled the box several times, ringing his small bell, and at one point laid a crucifix upon each of their chests. Their faces writhed, and I felt my skin creep. Then, Chanting in a low, firm voice, the priest gave me the signal. Together, we drove two long stakes, dipped first in holy water, home, piercing their hearts simultaneously. The bodies leapt forward in the box, straining against the stake, and a horrible, drawn-out wail shattered the stillness of the tomb. The priest dropped to his knees, and I clapped my hands over my ears, but the dreadful shriek penetrated. My stomach turned over and I retched. The good father followed suit. We're no supermen, and our bodies and our very souls revolted against this monstrous thing. Let us finish, my son. The priest said slowly, after a time, his face the color of ashes. We must bury these dead, that they may sleep in consecrated ground. I couldn't. I had to see her face again before it was done. She lay small and fragile as ever, her face calm, only there was no trace of life now. She was still and white, as only the dead, the truly dead, are. Todd's arm was flung across her chest, as if to protect her. I made myself move the arm, resting her head upon his shoulder, where it belonged. Then, as I looked, there was just Maria Todd was gone, and only a handful of dust lay piled up around the stake. It was enough. I slammed the lid shut. Looking back now, I can see it was all for the best. Rhea was different, apart from other women. A dreamer, a mystic, too easily influenced by the bizarre and the unnormal. I, on the other hand, am practical almost to a fault. Had she married me, I might have crushed her in the very thing that drew me to her. In time, she might have grown to hate me. Hunter, on the other hand, was a student. Introspective, given to romanticizing, susceptible to suggestion. Had I been confronted with Eve, I should have run like hell. To him, though, she was cloaked in mystery, hence, more desirable. What better choice for him, ultimately, than Rhea? That Ria had to die to achieve her happiness is of no real importance. Life is a transitory thing anyways. Sometimes, though, when I look at Ria's picture, it's hard to be practical. She was everything I shall ever want. I'd never been to Europe before the summer of 1947. I went to find Maria, to marry her. Instead, I found her and murdered her. And I will never go back again.
1: was Victoria Glad's Each Man Kills, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out his latest narration, Ancient Enemies, by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or on Twitter, at Voices of Brian. Links to both will be in the show notes. Thank you, Brian. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to find Tales to Terrify. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.